Control Workplace Hazards. Section 2. Describe short-term hazards in the trades. A short-term hazard can be described as any hazard that may cause injury and or illness and that may be remedied in a short period of time. This learning task will discuss some of the short-term hazards likely to be encountered when working in the trades. Slips, trips, and falls. Slips, trips, and falls on walking and working surfaces are the cause of many injuries in the workplace. Some of these accidents are the result of environmental conditions and others happen because of poor housekeeping and careless behavior. You can best avoid slips, trips, and falls by being aware of your surroundings and following some general walking and work surface guidelines. Keep all walking and working areas clean and dry. Keep all walking and working surfaces clear of clutter and debris. Install cables, extension cords, and hoses so that they will not become tripping hazards. Do not run on any work surface. If footing is unstable, use short steps with feet splayed out. Excavations. An excavation is the removal of ground material by digging in order to, in order to bury or access pipelines, conduits, foundations, etc. Trenches are special types of excavations in which the depth exceeds the width. Sometimes the term excavation and trench are used interchangeably, but there is a difference. Because trenches are narrow, workers can easily become trapped. Hazards involving with trench and excavation work include cave-ins and crushing, water accumulation, falling objects, collapse of adjacent structures, toxic gases in the soil. Cave-ins are the most common and deadly hazard in excavation work. When dirt is removed from an excavation, the surrounding soil can become unstable, with gravity forcing it into collapse. If the trench is deeper than 1.2 meters, 4 feet, you must be protected from cave-ins by either trench shoring or sloping. You must know and follow the appropriate shoring and sloping requirements before entering or working around an excavation. Shoring. Several methods can be used to shore up a trench. Hydraulic shoring uses hydraulic pistons that are extended outward until they press prefabricated plates against the trench walls as shown in figure one. The size and spacing of the parts of a timber and plank system are given in the WorkSafe BC OHS regulation. Size and spacing vary depending on the type of soil that the trench is dug into and the depth of the trench. Planks may be spaced if the soil is stable, but most must be close-fitting if the soil is loose and free-running. Plywood sheathing is sometimes used in place of planks. Timber shoring is slow to install because it must be installed from the top down. It is unsafe for a worker to enter the trench before it is shored. Trench shields or trench boxes are prefabricated structures Figure 3. These are not adjustable within the trench and are designed to protect the worker should a collapse occur, where shoring is designed to prevent the walls from collapsing. Sloping. Sloping a trench creates a naturally stable slope, similar to that which loose excavated material forms when dumped on a level surface known as the angle of repose. Unshored trench and excavation walls must be sloped flatter than the angle of repose, 
but in no case steeper than three horizontal to four vertical units unless otherwise specified in writing by a professional engineer. Figure four. Another method of sloping is called benching. All benched excavation 6.1 meters, 20 feet, or less in depth shall have a maximum rise between benches of 1.2 meters, 4 feet. For unrestricted worker access at any level, the width of the bench immediately above any particular rise shall not be less than 1.5 times the height of that rise. For example, in figure 6, the minimum bench width for a 1.2 meter, 4 feet rise would be 1.8 meters, 6 feet. Keep all piles of material and equipment at least two feet away from the edge of an excavation. Loose rock, soil, materials, and equipment on the face or near the excavation can fall or roll into the excavation or overload and possibly collapse the excavation walls. When working in a trench, there has to be safe means of access and egress for workers, such as a ladder, stairway, or ramp. For long trenches, you will require multiple exit points. Working around vehicles and heavy equipment. Workers are often required to work near vehicles and mobile equipment. It is the worker's responsibility to keep out of the way. Workers working near moving vehicles and equipment should stay alert at all times and keep a safe distance. Stay out of the circle formed by the extended bucket of an excavator, swing. Never get into blind spots of operators. Maintain eye contact with the operator. Never stand under loads handled by lifting or digging equipment or near vehicles being loaded or unloaded. Wear reflective or high visibility vests, hard hats, heel toe boots, and appropriate hearing protection while working near equipment. Alert the operator of any impending hazards, electrical wires, gas lines, sewer, or water lines, etc. Elevated work. Working in elevated situations can be very dangerous. Falls from elevated areas are one of the leading causes of fatalities among workers. While the risk of falls is high, there is much you can do to protect yourself. Using the appropriate personal protective equipment, practicing good housekeeping habits, and staying alert at all times will help you stay safe when working at elevations. In later sections, we'll be covering the OHS regulation related to scaffolding and fall protection. It is important that you make yourself aware of this before proceeding to work at elevation. Confined space. A work area that is not meant for human habitation with limited access and egress where there is a potential risk is known as a confined space. A confined space can be any enclosed space where there is a risk of death or serious injury from hazardous substance or dangerous conditions. Example, lack of oxygen. You must understand the hazards and safety precautions for working in confined spaces. Some examples of confined spaces that are fairly easy to identify include storage tanks, silos, vessels and vats, manholes, sewers and ductwork, combustion chambers in furnaces, etc., unventilated or poorly ventilated rooms. Some places must be assessed at their location as confined spaces. It is not possible to provide a comprehensive, detailed list of confined spaces, 
though many of the dangers associated with confined spaces are listed below. A lack of oxygen can occur due to a, to a process or reaction. Poisonous gas, fumes, or vapor can build up in sewers and manholes or enter tanks and vessels from connecting pipes. Liquids and solids can suddenly fill the space. Free-flowing solids, such as grain, can form a solid section and then suddenly collapse. Flammable vapors or residues left in tanks or vessels can explode or catch fire. Dust may be present in high concentrations in flour or grain silos. Hot conditions can lead to a dangerous increase in body temperature. Electrical hazards. No matter what your trade, on many jobs, you will use or work around electrical equipment. Extension cords, power tools, and portable lights are among the many pieces of equipment that use electricity. There are different types of electrical accidents, including burns, electric shock, explosions, falls caused by electric shock, fires. While the human body is a conductor of electricity, it is not a good one. Burns caused by electric shock are a result of the heat caused by resistance to electrical current. Electrical burns often occur below the skin surface and can damage muscle and nerve tissue. In several cases, electrical burns can be fatal. The extent of injury due to electric shock depends on a combination of voltage and current and the body's resistance to the electricity passing through it, a condition that changes from person to person. An electric shock occurs when you become part of the electrical circuit. When you contact a live portion of a circuit while in also contact with a lower potential, such as a ground. Even though you may normally deal with small voltages and current, values are never far away from lethal levels. You can receive a shock or burn from any common electrical circuit. The severity of the electrical shock depends on a number of factors. The amount of current that passes through the body, the path that the current takes through the body, type of voltage, AC or DC, voltage strength, the length of time that the current flows within the body, condition of the skin and the body's chemical makeup, area of contact. Normal household current, plugs and light circuits, is generally limited by a circuit breaker to a value of 15 amperes. This device has been designed to trip and open a circuit if the 15 ampere value is exceeded and is designed to protect against property damage. It is possible to cause a fatal injury with a current flow of only 50 milliamps or five one hundredths of an ampere. The body is sensitive to relatively small values of current. In comparison, a 100-watt light bulb draws approximately 0.85 amperes of current when connected to a 120-volt source. Remember, we have 15 amperes available in each standard house circuit. Industrial circuits may have a required flow of several hundred amperes. In both cases, these are dangerous amounts. Most fatal shocks occur when current passes through or near the heart. This is possible if the circuit passes from one arm to the other from the right arm to the left leg, or from the left arm to the right leg. Figure seven lists the effects of increasing amounts of current on the human body. Rescuing shock victims, first aid for electrical shock victims. 
Consult your employer's first aid attendant or medical personnel on acceptable procedures for dealing with local electrical shock emergencies. Most important thing to know about assisting an electrical shock victim are listed below. Do not touch a victim who is still connected to the power source. If you touch a victim who is in contact with an electrical source, you will become part of the circuit too, resulting in another casualty. Safely remove the power from the victim. If you cannot de-energize the circuit, separate the victim from the live circuit by using a piece of non-conductive material, such as a stick of lumber or wooden handle. If the shock victim is unconscious and has stopped breathing, start artificial respiration at once. Do not stop until a medical authority instructs you to stop. Lockout. A lockout or tagout system, L-O-T-O, is designed to protect workers from hazardous energy while they work with machines or equipment. As the name implies, a lockout procedure systematically uses locking devices to completely secure equipment that controls or represent a hazard. It also ensures that equipment is de-energized before being maintained or repaired. Energy sources can include hydraulic or pneumatic energy, mechanical and kinetic energy, gravitational and potential energy, and electrical energy. The following assumptions are unacceptable where safety is concerned. It is not enough to simply throw a switch and start work. It is not enough to hang a do not use sign on a machine. It is not enough to tell everyone not to turn on the power. It is not enough to have everyone assure you that no one will activate the power. Compressed gas. Compressed air is used in shops and on-site for operating nailers, staplers, impact tools, equipment, and paint sprayers. However, cleaning objects, machinery, benchtops, clothing, and other items with compressed air is dangerous. Injuries can be caused by the air jet and by particles made airborne. If compressed air must be used to clean equipment, the nozzle pressure must remain below 10 psi and personal protective equipment, PPE, must be worn to protect the worker's body, especially the eyes, against particles and dust under pressure. Compressed gases are often supplied to the job site in pressurized cylinders. Extreme caution should be used when working with these cylinders, as a damaged cylinder is an explosion hazard. A screw-on protective cap protects the cylinder valve. The cylinders and protective caps are usually black, although green and other colors are also used. The caps have right-hand threads, like all oxygen fittings, and come in various sizes to match the cylinders. The following safety procedures must be observed. Do not accept or use any compressed gas cylinder that does not have proper identification of contents. Always treat cylinders as if they are full and handle accordingly. Never drop cylinders or let them strike each other violently. Protect cylinders and any related piping and fittings against damage. Do not use slings or magnets for hoisting cylinders. Transport cylinders securely on a hand truck whenever possible. Never drag them. Secure transported cylinders to a suitable cradle or platform to prevent movement or upset. Chalk empty or M 
T on cylinders that are empty, close valves and replace protective caps. For detailed handling procedures, consult the manufacturer and supplier and the MSDS. Storing cylinders. These safety measures must be observed when storing gas cylinders. Store cylinders upright in a safe, dry, well-ventilated location that is maintained specifically for this purpose. Never store different flammable and combustible materials such as oil and gasoline in the same area. Do not store cylinders near elevators, walkways, stairwells, or exits, or in places where they could be damaged or knocked over. Do not store oxygen cylinders within 6 meters, 20 feet, of cylinders containing flammable gases, unless they are separated by a partition at least 1.5 meters, 5 feet high, that has a fire resistance rating of at least 30 minutes. Store empty and full cylinders separately. Prohibit smoking in the storage area. Weather. Many jobs require that you work outside. Since work often continues during periods of hot, cold, and wet weather, you need to understand that hazards associated with weather and be properly prepared. Cold weather. When working outdoors during winter, workers need to protect themselves against loss of body heat. When your body temperature drops even a few degrees below normal, you can begin to shiver uncontrollably and become weak, drowsy, disorientated, unconscious, or even fatally ill. Hypothermia is a condition in which your body loses heat at a rate greater than you are able to produce it. Cold temperatures, wind, poorly insulated or wet clothing, immersion in water, and fatigue are some of the main factors that contribute to hypothermia. The following guidelines can help you keep your body warm and avoid hypothermia, frostbite, and overexposure to the cold. Properly insulated headgear, footwear, and gloves are important. Heat loss is greatest from the head, dress, and layers. Wind causes cooling or wind chill. The stronger the wind at a given temperature, the cooler the wind chill will be. Water chills your body far more rapidly than air or wind. When working outdoors, always have proper waterproof clothing and extra dry clothes available. Even on a very cold day, strenuous activities can cause you to perspire. When you slow down to a normal pace, this moisture will add to the chilling effect. Cold water immersion speeds up the process of cooling down the body. When you're in the water, heat is conducted away from the body 25 times faster than in cold air. Severe hypothermia can develop rapidly if you are immersed in cold water without the protective of survival gear. Hypothermia danger signs. The effects of hypothermia can be gradual and often go unnoticed until it's too late. Early intervention is very important. Work with a buddy. Always stay on the lookout for early signs of hypothermia in both yourself and your buddy. Classic signs of hypothermia are known as the umbles. A worker mumbles, fumbles, and stumbles. Other additional signs of hypothermia are a drop in body temperature, fatigue or drowsiness, uncontrollable shivering. Heat stress. Heat stress occurs when abnormally hot air, humidity, or extremely heat Exertion prevents your body from cooling itself fast enough. 
avoid heat stress through the following preventative measures. Drink plenty of water and avoid very cold water. Avoid alcoholic or caffeinated drinks. Coffee and tea are diuretics. Do not overexert yourself. Wear lightweight, light-colored clothing of natural material. Keep your head covered and face shaded. Wear loose-fitting clothing, so long as it doesn't create a hazard. Take frequent short breaks. Rest in the shade whenever possible. Heat exhaustion. Heat exhaustion usually occurs when people exercise heavily or work in warm, humid places. Bodily fluids are lost through heavy sweating. When humidity is high, your sweat does not evaporate fast enough to cool your body. Symptoms of heat exhaustion may include fatigue, irritability, headache, and faintness, weak rapid pulse, shallow breathing, cold, clammy skin, profuse perspiration. Treatment for heat exhaustion is as follows. Ask the person to lie down in a cool, shaded area or air-conditioned room. Elevate the feet, massage the legs toward the heart. Give cold salt water, half teaspoon to half glass of water, or a cool, sweetened drink every 15 minutes until the victim recovers. Do not let the victim sit up, even after feeling recovered. Heat stroke. Heat exhaustion is often misinterpreted as heat stroke. Symptoms of heat stroke may include extremely high body temperature, 106 Fahrenheit or higher, hot, red, dry skin, absence of sweating, rapid pulse, convulsions, and unconsciousness. Treatment for heat stroke is as follows. Remove the victim from the heat. Have the victim lie down. Move all nearby objects as heat stroke may cause convulsions or seizures. Lower the victim's body temperature quickly. This can be done by fanning, spraying with a cool mist, wrapping the victim in cold, wet sheets, or wiping with a wet cloth until the body temperature is reduced. Do not give stimulating beverages such as coffee, tea, or soda. If available, a partially filled tub of cool water works best. <laughs>